King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon and made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple, its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard. A garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. This, believe it or not, is the word of the Lord. <laughs> okay, thank you. You can sit. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> Whenever you see, you know those three little dots? that you see up there sometimes, that's me trying, like that's the rated R part that you can go home and read on your own. It's not really rated R, but um, maybe a little heavy, heavy for a 10-year-old in the room. But um, so great to be with you all this morning, and happy anniversary, 40 years today. I just learned this just now. Happy anniversary. Um, so I just turned 39 on Friday. So you guys have been married longer than I've been alive. Good for you. Congratulations. I wasn't fishing for an applause for me either, by the way. I <laughs> there was, uh, it's been, we had a lot of June birthdays, right? Someone else's birthday was June? That's what we have some in the back. Yep, Mike. Um, Mary, is Mary here? Mary's birthday. Um, Jay's birthday. A lot of June birthdays. Uh, I don't know what was going on nine months ago, but um, maybe it's that time of year, not spring. But um, good morning, church. So wonderful to be with you. Can I pray, too? I just wanted to pray for some prayer requests and also um, uh, for our, our friend Raj um, Shaker, who we're supporting as a, as a missionary to India, um, who, which is his native land. And I just want to do a, a quick prayer for them, if you could join me in prayer. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, <clears throat> thank you so much, Lord, this morning for all that you've done for us. Thank you, Lord, for this church, your people. God, as, the, as we collected some cards last week that had prayer requests on them, um, we, God, you know what they are. I pray, Lord, for the, the members of our church um, that are experiencing joy and celebration, but also grief and heaviness. God, would you just be, be with them, be their comfort. Bless our missionary Raj, who safely arrived in India, I think, about a week ago. Be with his family, be with his children, be with his wife, um, who are in a completely and radically different um, universe from what they're used to. I pray that you just bless them. Help them to, to just feel your calling and your presence. Help their kids to acclimate to this new environment and to learn to love it, God. We just ask you for your blessing and your help. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a, a, a man named Major Claude Hensinger who was a squadron leader in the Air Force in World War II. 
and uh, he, he was returning um, after a bombing mission in Japan in August 1944 when the engine of his B-29 ignited into flames and he and his crew had to uh, eject, uh, do an, uh, an, emergency eject, an, an emergency ejection. And he landed safely um, in, in an unoccupied area of China, thankfully, where he used the same parachute that saved his life as a blanket and as a comforter, um, as a different source of, of rescue to keep himself warm while he waited for this rescue from his fellow soldiers. Well, Major Hensinger safely returned home eventually, and a few years later, he proposed to his girlfriend, Ruth, three years after he returned from w one of the most horrifying wars in all of human history. This man traveled through death and hell, and Hensinger made it out alive. He made it out home throughout on the other side. And on the other side of that grave, he married the love, his, love of his life, Ruth. Now, I think if you are a fan of history, what you'll find um, during this World War II era is a lot of really wonderful love stories like this. They just abound. And I think it's because war has a way of sort of paring down what really matters most in life, doesn't it? It sort of develops or gives us like these, this singular vision for the most important things of life. Now this morning we read a text and basically, if you, if you missed it, there's obviously a lot of poetry happening here. But basically, this is this couple who is madly in love with each other that we learned about in chapters 1 and 2 and 3. This is their wedding day. The, the, they sort of opened the, the, the curtain to their courtship. We got a view of it in the preceding chapters. Their new and their developing love has finally reached reached its wedding day, wedding bells. And they allowed us prior to this to sort of capture each other's thoughts. We, we saw what they were thinking about each other. We were, we were able to listen into on what we called, and I think la it was last week or the week, week before, their emotionally intimate communication. They even gave us a peek into their physical romantic encounters. Although, as not so much compared to today, those encounters were reserved. So we watched them experience even some anguish. They weren't married yet, so there was this separation. They would be in the, this embrace, this romantic encounter, but they were, weren't married yet, so that there was still a distance. They had to wait to be married, and we saw them sort of suffering over that. And what an amazing trip it's been that we were even able to get whisked into their most private dreams Last week we saw that what this, this woman, this, the girl, had a recurring dream about her husband-to-be. But today's their wedding day and their wedding night, if you missed it. <laughs> it's the day that they both have wanted and waited for. Had, had, they've been patient for it. They heeded their warning to not awaken love before its time. Remember, we read that over and over again in the preceding verses. They heeded their own warning not to awaken love before its time, but now, at last, it's time. It can be awakened. And I want to notice four components of their wedding day. It's maybe not quite unlike the weddings that we're used to being a part of or attending ourselves. <clears throat> and I want to close with a very important and hopefully unique application that I think is more to the point of what this story actually is about. So let's look at, some four, uh, at these four components. Who do we see? What are the players or the actions involved in this wedding ceremony? First, we see the groom. Second, we see the bride. Third, the union. And fourth, the guests. And we're going to take these in order. So let's begin with the groom. The text begins with a question. Who is this, or what is this, coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke? It's Joe Marin. <laughs> Perfumed with myrrh and frankincense. I don't know that he was wearing myrrh that day. With all the fragrant powders of a merchant, behold, it's the litter of Solomon. Around him are 60 mighty men. 
the mighty men of Israel. And it goes on from there in the text that we just read. So here we have a picture of a royal wedding procession. This isn't just any wedding procession. This is a royal wedding procession. And what's interesting about this is that this likely, most scholars believe that this is really not about the actual Solomon. It's just more spoken about in his honor about any old wedding. And why is such royalty ascribed to a wedding day? I think we'll see by the ends of this sermon. So I'm going to ask you to wait before we answer that question. So many are present in his entourage that dust is rising up from the ground. They can barely be seen in this cloud of dirt and dust from their marching toward the bride. They're perfumed with myrrh and they're carrying a royal stretch limo. Did you see that part? It's a carriage made with the wood of Lebanon. That's the finest wood that they had available at the time. Posts of silver, back of gold, a seat of purple. So here, what, what we have here is a, print, a, the, a limousine at its finest in the day. Think of the royal wedding of Kate Middleton and Prince William. Some of you might have watched that on TV when that was happening. And I think there was a more recent one that none of us really cared about. Um, we cared, I don't know why, because that was pretty cool too. But Kate Middleton and Prince William, everybody was watching it on TV to get a glimpse of the, circums, the pomp and circumstance. What will she be wearing? What car will deliver them to the, the church? And all, how fascinated we were about a, a king and a prince, or excuse me, a prince and a princess about to be wed. And here we get this image of a kingly dignity that should characterize every bridegroom. A royalty that if you're married should be your crown. And he's not alone. His character is being affirmed by the, the 60 mighty men around him. Oh, and this tells us something about marriage, doesn't it, in our preparation for marriage. Who is affirming the dignity and character of the one we are about to wed? Are we getting affirmation or warnings? Right? Now, I know that we live in a world sometimes that is tainted by sin, and sometimes we get warnings about marriage because they don't make enough money or they're, um, they're this color or that Right, things that should not matter. We get warnings because of those things. But at times, at least in my experience, most of the time with the people that surrounded me in my life, warnings did not come because of those situations. They came because of genuine, real, actual concern about the preparedness of my life and the others. Isn't that true? But here, this king, this bridegroom, is being affirmed by 60 mighty men. That is, trustworthy men. This bride could trust their affirmation of the dignity and worth of the man she was about to marry. He is not alone. His character is affirmed. He is going after her. She's not going after him. He is going after her to consummate their love. He's strong. He's prepared to love and to provide for his life. That's what all, for her life, excuse me, that's what all of this imagery indicates. All of the pomp, circumstance, strength, provision, love, everything that in, is implied by this man. The long-waited for groom has showed up. They don't have to just hug each other anymore, which, which was last chapter, the chapter before that we saw them do. The time for love to be awakened has arrived. And then, as I think what happens even in our culture in most weddings, the attention shifts from this dusty cloud to the bride. All eyes are off of him now, and all eyes are on her now. They all look to her. So at first, everyone's looking at him. Isn't that true even in our weddings today? At a ceremony, usually the groom is up there with his boys. Everyone's sort of looking at them, but then when the bride enters, people stand up and they turn and they look in the other direction. Isn't that true? Now all our eyes are on her. It's the same in this text. Everyone's looking at the bride. But it's not the community ultimately that, we're see, that we see looking at the bride or speaking about the bride. It's the groom. The groom looks 
the groom sees and the groom begins to speak. He sings a wedding song that runs for, for 15 verses, chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. He starts to sing to her his wedding vows. And what we get now is a window into their vows to each other. He says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. He says it two times. What do they say about God normally? Holy, holy, holy. Why do they keep repeating themselves? Well, Hebrew poetry would do this to emphasize a point. In other words, listen up. What I'm saying is important, and not only is it important, but not, not only is this person holy, he's really, really, really holy. So, you are beautiful, beautiful in the text. You're twice beautiful. That means you are more beautiful than any other person I know. So to this man, his wife is the only one in the room. His bride is the only one in the room. He's not looking at the maid of honor, right? He's not checking her out, wondering what he could have had if she were in that white dress. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. You are beautiful. The bride is ready for her bridegroom. She prepared herself for her wedding day. She did this through her purity. She adorned herself with perfume, with jewelry, and with wedding clothes. And this is all an image of the purity of the inner beauty of her life. You see, she had adorned her herself with a saving herself for her husband. Prior to this, and this is how she did it, her posture toward every other man, every other suitor, was that she was betrothed to another. She wore an engagement ring. She was off limits. She was spoken for because there was a home that was waiting for her. She wore his ring because she was betrothed to another. Oh, and perhaps you think this morning that you're not engaged yet. You might not even have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Could I let you know something this morning? Even if there is no one on your side, there is even not a hint of a prospect in sight for you. You are betrothed to another. You see, friends, one day it is likely that you will be married to a person, a man, a woman, and you see, you wear that person's engagement ring right now even though you don't know their name. That's what she did. She waited for him even though, even though he didn't have a face yet, he didn't have a name yet. She was betrothed to another. And friends, she was actually betrothed to someone even greater than him. And we'll see that at the end of the sermon. Hopefully you'll get the better picture. But getting back to our story, now the bridegroom is here and he starts showing his he starts speaking his vows to the bride and starts to describe how beautiful his bride is and describes all her best features. And he begins with her eyes and her hair. So he starts high, and he starts to go south. <laughs> okay? He begins with her eyes and her hair. He says they're like doves. They're a window into her soul, in other words. He begins there with the eyes because what really mattered to him wasn't her body. It was her person, her inner person. He loved her soul, her guts, right? So he, he begins with her eyes who are like a dove, a window to her soul, innocent, pure, ready like a dove. That's what a dove was an image of, purity. He then, he starts to travel south. He starts to look at her teeth. You know, back then, they didn't have many orthodontists. So having teeth back then was kind of a big deal, right? And it says in the text that they matched, right? They, one wasn't larger than another. She had good teeth, and he liked that. That might not be a big deal in our, in our culture because most of us get, you know, braces when we're nine. But... She, he loved her teeth. Good for him. He should love her teeth. But then he starts talking about his lips, her mouth, sweetness, he describes it with. Her cheeks, her neck are like fruit. It's like a tower. It's, he's describing the jewelry on her neck. And then even he, he describes her chest. We left that out. Sorry. And, he's, and he stops there, though. He gets right about here, and he stops the description. And he ends this description with, again, 
You are altogether beautiful. And now the ceremony's over. The vows have been presumably, presumably exchanged between the two. The ceremony is over. The vows have been said. And the next stop for the bride and the groom is not the electric slide. Okay? In our culture, what, that's, oh, that's old. What's the song now? Um, what's, the, what's like a group dance that they do now? The cha-cha slide. Right? It's not the cha-cha slide. It's not the electric slide. That's not their next stop. You see, in our culture, after the wedding ceremony, what's the next stop? The reception. Right? We hang out with our friends. We dance. We eat cake. There's presents. There's all this fun. But in the ancient Near East, when the vows were over, the next stop was consummation. They left the ceremony for sexual union, for consummation. And that's what we see next in our story about the groom and the bride is their union. He says <clears throat> in verse 6, Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh. Now what does that mean? What does the day until the day breathes mean? Well, basically it means until the sun comes up. So in other words, he plans on his wedding night lasting a very long time. I will go to the mountain of myrrh. Come with me from Lebanon, my, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart the peak of Amana. He's inviting her to come and consummate their vows. And the meaning here is clear enough because I just told you, but that's what this means. He's inviting his bride to consummation, <clears throat> to sexual union. And we have to note here, because it's getting a little hot in here now, but we have to note here that marriage is the context for this union. It's not just a good time on a Friday night after you partied and had a little too much to drink with some guy you met. Marriage is the only safe place for a man and a woman to belong to each other like this. There was a man, a scholar named Doug O'Connell, who writes a really great book, and he defines sexual intercourse as the inexplicable act of mutual possession passion, and submission. It's I give myself to you, and you give yourself to me. Marriage in scripture is two becoming one. For two to become one, and then two to again, is devastating. And anyone who has ever experienced this knows exactly what I'm talking about. You see, over time, maybe it loses, loses its sting a little bit, the, but, but maybe the first one, two, or three, you know how incongruous it is to, wait, to experience such union with another person and then walk away. You know it's not right. Why do you think they call that the walk of shame? They call it that for a reason. We kind of joke about it. But don't we just kind of know in our gut that you should not be walking away from this lovely lady? that you should be with her forever. So Doug O'Connell defines <clears throat> this sexual union as the inexplicable act of mutual possession, passionate submission. I give myself to you, and you give yourself to me. Now why, though? Why? Why isn't this just a fun thing that we do, like flying a kite like, or shaking a hand? What's the big deal? You see, friends, if there is a God, the, the big deal is this. If there is a God, and God made us, and God designed certain things to be used for certain purposes, then for us to resist that is to our own peril. Now we, we might not understand it, we might not like it, but just try to resist it. And it will be to your own peril. I've made this example before. It would be like if I invented a toaster, and that toaster tried to be a blender. Right? It's not fair that I'm not a blender. Okay, put some water in those little slots on the top of you. Push that button down. It's not going to work. You see, friends, if God made us, man and woman, and God made, a, made sexual union for a certain purpose and reason, then to scorn that is to our own peril. Do you see? <clears throat> Marriage in Scripture is a covenant, and sex is the oath that ratifies the covenant. This is what the Bible says God created marriage and sex for. Now let me explain to you what this means because this is important. 
to ratify a contract legally today, some people might know about this, maybe a little bit more than me, but when you ratify a contract today, it gives a form of legal consent to the terms of the contract, doesn't it? That's what it means to ratify a contract. And normally, how do we do this? Signature. We sign it. That makes the contract valid. It ratifies the contract. Okay? You can read the contract out loud. You can understand it. You can even say, yeah, I agree to those terms. But it doesn't matter until it's signed. Once, once it's signed, you're next in the noose. Isn't that true? Once it's signed, you're next in the noose. A covenant in the Bible is a legally binding contract between two parties made in the presence of God. So this isn't just a contract that we're making out a deal because I'm selling you my house. This is a contract that you make in God's presence. God's the judge. God's the notary, so to speak. He's the witness. You see, in Scripture, two people can make a covenant with each other in God's presence, or one person can make a covenant with God. Okay, we see that all over the Bible. So covenant is the... um, So a covenant in the Bible is a legally binding contract between two parties made in God's presence. It says, I will do this and not do that. You will do this and not do that. And here are the blessings. Here are the privileges. If we keep this, here are the great consequences of this covenant keeping. But also, it outlines the curses, doesn't it? Here are the bad things that are going to happen if I break my terms of the covenant and if you break yours. Now, after this covenant was spoken, by the way, the the Ten Commandments are an example of a covenant being made with God and man. Why were there two tablets? It's not because God ran out of space on on one of them. Okay? Oops. You know, number five, I'm out of space. Uh, Let's turn this thing over. I'll just make another one. No. It's, this is your copy and the other one is my copy because there are two parties, God and man, right? What did Moses do two seconds later when Israel had already broken the covenant? He smashed them, didn't he? You see, so here's an example in Scripture of a a covenant actually playing itself out. I'll do this, you won't do that. Here are the bad and good things that will happen if it's kept or broken. And the ratifying oath, what's the ratifying oath? It's not a signature, but it's actually a sacrifice, a sacrifice was made in the Old Testament. And the sacrifice was made as a picture of what would be the blessing of keeping it or the curse of breaking it. Oftentimes, the ratifying oath to a covenant in the Old Testament was, was a sacrificial animal. So in other words, may I die this death if I break this covenant with you, God. Right? That was the symbol. That's what was being pictured. One, one situation with Abraham, they actually cut the animals in two. Now, I know, I know our, our PETA fans are outraged by this, but try to understand this was a different day and age, okay? But, and it was symbolic. It was supposed to be outrageous because it, it, it was communicating the severity of, of the covenant made, of the obligation to keep it. So a number of times the oath was an animal sacrifice, sometimes torn in two, picturing the party being torn in two if they break the covenant. Now, now let's just think about this now. God created sexual union to be the ratifying oath of the marriage covenant. And we've got to team this out logically and mentally. That means that sexual union ratifies the covenantal vows. In other words, it obligates us to a lifelong union of covenants. It's what initiates the marriage. It's not just for fun. It's not just a good time. And it's not just to have babies. All those things are part of it too. It is a covenant ratifying oath. It is the ink on the paper. Do you see the significance now? of sexual union. It's the signature on a contract made with God and with your spouse. And when we treat it differently, we treat it to our own peril. 
That's why, like I said before, there is such a crushing feeling when you've signed the contract, so to speak, but you haven't said the vows. And you walk away physically, emotionally, psychologically, you've married them. And now you divorce them. You see? Oh, how, how tragic this is. How emotionally damaging it is to our souls and to our spirits. That walk of shame. You see, friends, I don't mean, I'm using that word that it's colloquial, right? The walk, that phrase, walk of shame. In Christ, there is no guilt or shame. We have a new beginning. All things are made new. So this is not meant to guilt anyone who's fallen in this area, but just to spur you on to treat this with the dignity that God created it to have. See? Today's a new day. And all things are new today in Christ. See? But we, we ignore this to our own peril. <clears throat> it's not, if it's not the oath, the signature of marital love, like those two pieces of animal, it will tear you in two. And how many people know it's true? It will tear you in two. Now these two lovers, back to our story, understand this. They celebrate this. They've waited for this moment. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. Now prior to this moment, the gardens were locked. <laughs> okay? Verse 12, a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Now today we have beautiful gardens that we have access to. Okay? We can go down to Frerish Farms and see the wonderful flowers that are, that are blooming right now. We can go down to public parks and see just wonderful uh, uh, flowers and foliage and grass and all these different things. But back then in the ancient Near East, um, gardens were novelty. Rich people had gardens. So they didn't want riffraff coming in and picking their flowers. Okay? So they lock them. They didn't want anyone coming in. People were not allowed into these beautiful gardens, into these palaces. So Solomon, the, the bridegroom, is describing his, his bride-to-be's sexuality as a garden locked, his bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. In other words, it was not something given out to anyone without a wedding day. But, and here's the magic of this moment for them, they both had the keys, right? She gave the key to him, and he gave his key to her, right? That's this thing. That's the key. They each held the key. Prior to marriage, they weren't experimenting with each other. They didn't have fun at college, right, F figuring it out. As a matter of fact, they gave cautions over and over again. But now they give full consent. Full consent. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. Let my beloved come into the garden and eat its choicest fruit. Okay? Do the math. And the bridegroom obliges. He says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. Sister, by the way, that's creepy and weird. Why does he keep saying that? I don't like that. It just means friend, soulmate. This is more than just a good-looking girl, okay? I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate the honeycomb with the honey, and I drank the wine with the, with the milk. <clears throat> and more than this, these two lovers don't reveal. The door shut, the curtains close, and that's all we get. And you know, this verse, this is really interesting, if you know anything about literature or poetry, this verse is the exact center of the Song of Solomon. There's 111 lines of poetry after it, and there are 111 lines of poetry before it. Now, in Hebrew poetry, rhyming was easy, because just if you know anything about the language, you probably don't, but it, it, it's an old, archaic language. Most words ended with the same letters. So 
all the words rhymed, <laughs> okay? So rhyming wasn't how they made poetry. It's not always how we make poetry either. They made poetry more, more, um, more with structure, like sentences matching sentences later on, and line, line, numbers of lines and all this, and that's what made it beautiful. The, 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 the type of vocabulary that they would use, the metaphors, the play on words, all these different things. But here, right in the center, right the dead center of the Song of Solomon is their sexual union, their consummation. I drank my, my wine with my milk. Right in the middle, and that's pointing something to that's pointing out something to us that's very important. It's pointing out what is this about? What is the Song of Solomon about? It's about marriage, union. It's about the union of marriage. It's not about the friendship prior. It's not about the marital conflicts later that we'll see. It's about these two are one. That's what this is about. Their union is the point of this poem. And then the curtain closes. We're not allowed to see anything else. He's described enough. We only hear... Now, after they close the door, and we can't see in anymore, we only hear what the guests announce, and that's our fourth category of people. You see, the, the happy couple's now off making merry, right? And the guests are left behind at the reception, dancing, drinking, eating, enjoying that a man and a woman have been wed. They say, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. They're affirming, yes, the time has come for the bride and groom to be one. So all of the guests are affirming, applauding this moment. The bride is ready. The bridegroom has come. The covenant vows have been spoken. Sign on the dotted line. Go ahead. The curtain closes and they sign. The guests applaud their union. Isn't this great? What a wonderful picture of what marriage and love is. Now, I know that we all fall short of it. I know that we've all failed. We've all fallen. But like I said already, today's a new day. Oh, the kind of love that we can know if we simply surrender to God's will and direction. If we simply repent and follow him, it's so much better. But there's a better application than just about man and wife, I think, going on here about two people getting married. I opened the sermon by introducing you to Major Claude Hensinger. Did you, do you remember him? <clears throat> he ejected from his B-29 engulfed in flames. He floats safely down to the ground in his parachute, uses that parachute as a pillow and blanket to keep him warm until someone would come and rescue him. Well, what I didn't tell you is that when he got home, he took, he took that life-saving parachute with him. And he delivered it to a seamstress who used that fabric, that same fabric, to create one of the most beautiful wedding gowns and stunning works of art that the love of his life later, Ruth, would walk down the aisle to on their wedding day. Now this, this wedding gown, which is pictured on the screen here in a moment, is now preserved in the Smithsonian National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. So this beautiful wedding gown, that was a parachute that saved his life. He used that wedding gown to float safely to the ground. He used that wedding gown to cover himself in the cold. It's literally saved his life. And when he got home, he, he brought it to a seamstress, and he dressed his bride in the thing that saved him. That which saved him, that which gave him life, gave them union. Okay? And follow this. Because, friends, Jesus rescues sinners from the flames of judgment, the flames of chaos, by his death on the cross and resurrection. He, after this, proposes life to us, eternal union. And then he dresses us with his wedding clothes. His death, his resurrection is transferred to us 
and we walk down the eternal divine aisle with it, spotless and without flaw. When it comes time, he provides the clothes of life from the fabric of his salvation. His perfect life, his perfect death died in exchange for ours. The parachute, so to speak, that brought him out of the grave. Oh, friends, these are the same clothes that will bring you out of the grave and make you one with him forever and ever because he's the better groom. He comes to us. We don't come to him. He's coming to you right now in the form of God's word, speaking to you this moment. Mark chapter 14 says this. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One, Jesus Christ? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven with his 60 mighty men and with the smoke rising from the dust of the ground. In Mark chapter 13, he will send his angels and he will gather his bride from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Oh, there's no place too far away, friend. You're not so far away. You're not out of his reach. He's coming. Revelation chapter 19, I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. His, eye, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God, and the armies of God arrayed in fine linen. The wedding dress, white and pure, followed him on white horses. Oh, friends, the bridegroom is coming. And if you trust in him by faith, he's coming for you. All you need to do is wait, be ready, consecrate yourself by faith to Jesus Christ. Wear his rank. Wear the better rank. You see how I wish someone would love me like this Solomon guy? I wish someone would look at me with those kind of eyes, that kind of affection. I've never had that. Oh, well, let me introduce you today to someone who is much better than Solomon. You don't need this dupus giving you googly eyes. Trust me, that's not what you need. You need the better bridegroom, madly in love with you, speaking to you like this man spoke to this bride. The bridegroom is coming, church. Where is ring? What is this coming from the wilderness with clouds? perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. Who is that off in the distance? See, these weren't just words of the guests. These weren't just words of the bride. These are the words of the church. Who is that off in the distance? Coming for us with clouds. It's the greater bridegroom. Ready to bring us home and to be one with us for all eternity. It's Christ coming for the greater bride. Revelation chapter 19, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. These 60 men, these guests at the weddings, what are they saying? Hallelujah, for the Lord God, he reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Oh, are you ready? Do you know that there's a greater bridegroom and that he's coming? Are you ready for him? Are you waiting for him? Do you wear his ring? Or do you lie down with every other suitor that winks at you? Wait for him, friends. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her To make her holy, he cleansed her by the washing of water through the word. He presented presented her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle. And that's important, friends, because none of us can wear white on this wedding day. We're all guilty. We're all stained with sin. 
We're all broken off from God's blessing and oneness with him because we've sinned against him. But he's not content with that. So what he does is he lives a perfect life, gives us his perfect life, dress us in his white robes. We get his righteousness and we get his union. Isn't that great news? And all you need to do is confess to God and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to him for your salvation and he'll give it to you. He always says yes. Always. How many people ever asked someone to marry you and they said no? Don't raise your hands. <laughs> he always says yes. He never says, I want a divorce. You see, because he dyed his blood so that he would never have to divorce you. No matter what you do. Isn't that great news? You say, oh, great, I consent. Well, that's not, that's not the point, is it? You see, how Paul says in Romans, if you who have died to sin, right, you wear this ring, if you who have died to sin and been given new life, how can you continue on in it? Knowing this love, it is incongruous for you to ever continue back into that old way. So we need to make ourselves ready by receiving the, cle the cleansing that Christ provides. We don't make ourselves ready by losing 15 pounds or by getting rich or by buying a house, or being smart. We simply receive his goodness, his perfections, his character, his parachutes. Those are what make us lovely. They co consecrate new life to him, and that's how we wait for him. Live with him in mind. Live with him in mind. Gather with God's people. Gather with them on church, at church on Sunday, in small groups, around your Bible, in your prayer closets. Gather, prepare yourself, because he's coming. He's ready. Prepare yourself by living on mission, by making known to others that there's a better bridegroom, that there's a better life waiting for them, a union. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when per the perfection comes, when completion comes, what is in part will disappear. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see only as in a reflection, as a mirror. But then we'll see face-to-face -face union. Now I know a little in part as a Christian. I know a little. But then, you see, we're engaged now. So we know in part, but when Christ comes, we will know him fully as we are fully known. The confusion, the questions in faith when he comes will be answered. We'll see him fully. Oh, and you know what? We're going to have some guests that are present. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude all of the myriad of angels. The Bible says that God created angels. Myriads. That means they are countless. You see, they're the guests on this wedding day. And you know what they're saying? Hallelujah. For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Rejoice. Exult. Applaud. Why? Because that's a really cool star. Or look at the moon. Oh, wow, how about that woolly mammoth? Isn't that really cool of God that he's so powerful to make that? That's not what they're happy about. Let us rejoice and exult and give glory for the marriage has come. The union has happened. Man was lost, but now he's found. The rescuer has rescued and the bride is delivered to the eternal home. Isn't that great news? You see, friends, the woolly mammoth and the trees and the stars in the sky, you know what those are according to Scripture all over the book of Psalms? They're God's flower bouquet to you. They're proof that he loves you. They're proof that he's real, that he exists, that he made this, that he made you, and that he loves you. He, doesn't, he didn't just make you to exist. He made you to be one with him. Isn't that wonderful? That's what we live for. So, friends, if you're married... 
eat, drink, and be drunk with love. Oh, friends, if you're married to Christ, one day you will eat, drink, and be drunk with love. Isn't that great? Move heaven and earth to go after your spouse. Find them wherever they are. Don't give up on them. Don't quit on them. Announce that you love them to everyone that you know. Clothe them with forgiveness and grace. Clothe them with beauty. And know this continual union in your marriage. And then friends, if you're in Christ, Jesus is coming. He's coming for you. You're not coming for him. You're waiting for him. He's coming for you. He's the hero. He's the one that gets the job done. He created the heavens. He died for you. He's coming to get you. He makes you beautiful. You don't make yourself beautiful. Isn't that good news? He makes you beautiful. That's what it means that you're saved by grace through faith. And the only one that matters is the one that's enthralled with you. It doesn't matter what your boss thinks or your mom thinks or your dad thinks. I don't mean to disrespect them. We love them, especially if they're kind and good to us, right? But ultimately what matters is what the king thinks. It doesn't, it doesn't even matter what we think, our self-assessment. When God looks at you in Christ, he speaks these words. You captivate my heart. You have captivated my heart. He says it twice to you. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. Wow. I look at God, he looks at me, and that's what he says? You have captivated my heart, says your God. Come to him, friends. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for all that you've done for us.